Welcome to My Favourite Beatles Song, the podcast where we celebrate the music of the Beatles with a distinguished guest. Today, I'm talking with musician, songwriter, producer, actor, stand-up performer, author and podcaster, Guy Pratt. Welcome, Guy. Uh, thank you. Hello. Did I miss anything in that? No. I mean, I've done some of those things more than other things. <laughs> Part of the difficulty of introducing you guys, how much you have done. But let me say that you were probably best known as the basis for Pink Floyd, Roxy Music. You've played with Madonna, Michael Jackson, Ice House, Coverdale Page. The list does really go on and on. Yeah, it does. It does a bit. Don't go on. Like my list. <laughs> Today, obviously, we're going to talk about the Beatles. And the two things I always ask my guests, number one, how would you rate your fandom of the Beatles on a scale of one to ten? That's a really good point. You see, with the Beatles, it's such fundamental doctrine. And and especially something I've actually only come to sort of over quite recently, I must say quite recently in the last 15 years or so, is that actually just how much of a debt all we bass players owe to McCartney. So it's one of those things where it, it's like asking a, a Christian, how much of a fan of Jesus are you? It's like, it doesn't, it's not really, do you know what I mean? It's not That's a, perfect. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's a good analogy, yeah. <laughs> so would you rather not say, or do you want to put a number on it? No, I wouldn't, because I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a fan of the Beatles. It, it's, I mean, because like I said, they're just so fundamental. It, it's like, it, it, it's kind of rude to say, I like them this much. Yeah, fair play. The second question that I ask people is, have you had any interaction with the Beatles, their entourage, seen them live, anything like that? Yes. Excellent. Let's move on. Do you want to, yeah, tell me. what, what Actually, this came, up, this came up in the Rock on Tours podcast this week, which is, I said, it, when Gary, because we had Stuart Copeland on, Gary asked if we'd ever played together and Stuart said, no, I don't think so. And I said, went, oh, yes, we have. And it was some very glitzy Hollywood party. And I played with Stuart and Jeff Lynne and then Ringo. Wow. And Fantastic. I can't remember what we played. I mean, right. it was a party. It was late. I was probably very drunk. I'd say, you know, it's ridiculous. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you had two drummers. You had Stuart and Ringo. Not, not, not at the same time. Oh, okay. Not at the same right. time. Yeah. No. No, that, yeah. yeah. That would have been a very interesting combination of styles, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't imagine it. Now, I, am I not right in saying that you're, I'm surely the only guest ever who will ever be on this podcast, who was supported by Paul McCartney. Nebworth. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Pink Floyd headlined Nebworth over Paul McCartney. Yeah, Did you meet him? Is... I didn't meet any... him then, but I met him. I'm, I'm the favorite. I first met Paul. I've met Paul quite a few times, and he's just just adorable because, you know, I've met his, his kids a fair bit. I've played with James, actually. I played at oh. Youth's, Youth Got Some Producers Award a few years ago. It was a really, really great. It was a fantastic band of um, Paul Cook on drums, me on bass, Richard Ashcroft singing, youth doing sort of baritone guitar, Willow Robinson playing, and James McCartney playing guitar. That was nice. And I know Stella and Mary a bit. I mean, I, I, well, Mary's a good friend of my missus, so that's really nice. In fact, she wrote a blurb for her latest book, so that was very mm. nice. But Paul, I first met, I was first introduced to Paul at, I always remember this, at the after show party at Linda's memorial gig. And I was introduced by Johnny Marr, which was really cool. And what was fantastic was that Paul put his arm around me and he said, you know what, guy, the thing about us bass players. And all I could think was, us? I'm in an us with Paul McCartney? Brilliant. But then, and I've yeah. since been, I've, in fact, last time I saw him was actually at Mary's, a party of Mary's. It was her 
50th. And for some reason, we got onto mistakes, mistakes and records. And I just, I think I just said, but have you, have you ever sort of, you know, mucked up on a record and thought about it? He said, well, there's a song by the, by the Beatles called uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. I was like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, know it, yeah. And uh, and he went, yeah, we got through that. And I thought, oh, shit, well, obviously we're doing that again. And everyone thought it was all right. So I've been desperately listening to it, trying to find what McCartney did wrong. And mm. I can't find it. But my, my the other really sort of special moment I've got with him is I was at a gig of his. I got a message from his tech, was, is Sid Price, who was my tech with Pink Floyd. And as, as a nice little sidebar to that, his son, Tom Price, is now on McCartney's crew. And McCartney calls him half price. Perfect. But I got, I can't remember if he called me. I can't remember how long ago this was. So if he would have sent me a text or we would have spoken before the show. But he said, come to the side of the stage. Come to my side of the stage right at the end of the show. Literally, as soon as it finishes, come right there. I went, all right. I wonder what that is. So show finishes. They go off. I go to the side of the stage. It goes, there, you've got three minutes for I have to put it away. And he thrusts the violin bass into my hands, right? And so I'm saying, with, with the candlestick part set list on the top, there, clearly visible, sellotaped on it. But of course, everything's back to front. And so I have to turn it upside down. And this is probably a lot to do with my choice here. So I, I, I have to work out upside down. I'm trying to think, fuck, I've got to play something. What can I do? And I managed to work out Day Tripper. So I have played Day Tripper upside down on the violin bass. Your chosen song is Day Tripper. Day Tripper was recorded on October the 16th, 1965. It was released on December the 3rd in the UK, 1965, and in the US on December the 6th. It was backed by We Can Work It Out. And of course, it was double A-side, which is the Beatles' first double A-side. That's right, yeah. May, may even be the first ever double A-side, I'm not sure. I think it is. I think it actually is, yeah. Yeah. And it entered the chart at number one in the UK, stayed there for five weeks. And people forget what a big deal it was so I remember when I was a kid, it's like, you know, you could count on the fingers of one hand when things went to, you know, like when going underground went toward number one. Or I remember uh, that. Or, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. Like, straight or, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Slate. And you were thrilled. It was thrilling because records were never played on the radio before they were released. And then later it was, you know, a record was played for weeks. For, so they kind of. It was slightly was different in the US because it didn't. It peaked at number five, but that's because in the US they do they do it by airplay, don't they? And other factors back then. So I think we can work it out. Certainly was number one. Iola, <laughs> yeah, right. Iola, I think, yeah, yeah. So those are the facts. What made you reach for this one first? It, it's one of my absolute favourites because it's it's one of the first real great riff based rock songs, you know. And it's to be slightly sort of musical about it. It's the first time. Anyone did anything just outside of that straight blues or major triad sort of rock and roll form. It was the first nine you ever heard. Yeah, in the riff. Yeah. You know, you you never heard that. Everyone was just learning the blues scale, right? There, there were no nines. Yes. You know, there were sixes, but there were that. So, so I think there's that. And the fact that, and it's, because what's interesting is the, I looked at what, what the, the song that, that Lennon says he he ripped it from, from Watch Your Step by Bob, Bobby Parker. 
And and if you listen to that, it's kind of really not. I mean, I I get it. It's like the same sort of groove and the feel, and they're after that sort of Motowny thing. <laughs> It's really, it's it's long. It's a long riff. You know, I mean, the riffs available at that time were sort of, you really got me and can't explain and my generation, you know, a riff was dang, 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 dang. You know, it was like, it's years before Paige would get his kind of Marla chops on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's it's fantastically complicated for a riff. And like I said, and has has the nine, which was which was to become the sort of defining note of the 80s, really, wasn't it? The riff, if you call it a riff, that Andy Summers does in Every Breath You Take, which uh, also has a nine in it, doesn't it? I mean, Andy was the nine king, wasn't he? He was the ninth king, really. If you look into what they say about it, it was a it was a sort of rush release. They took a day off. They were recording Rubber Soul, which is a great album. Yeah. They'd just done Drive My Car, which is a similar sort of upbeat tune. And I get the feeling that they kind of, well, John, because it's mainly written by John, this one, isn't it? I think he just sort of got it together, got it into the studio and got it down in about in a, in a day, basically, I think, is, is the feel that I get from their quotes. Yeah, it's because, that's, because this is the time when where music is going through that big transition from kind of the early 60s to what shaped everything that came after it, you know, when guitars are getting dirtier. And so this whole period, 65, 66, is, you know, and the fidelity is changing, you know, the like, you know, Rub Rubber Soul is like, is the first Beatles album that really sounds like an album, like something we can listen to as opposed to a historical artifact. So I think, you know, there's a lot of that that's amazing about it. I'm just thinking about the gear because, of course, I've got a book all about the Beatles gear here. Well, of course you have. Go on. And <laughs> apparently it's not one of those back in those sessions. You can't be sure. There are not many photographs in the studio, but there are at least 12 guitars there. Is that when they've just been given the strats? Yeah. They had those two, the ocean blue strats. Yeah, exactly. They've got 12 strings, the famous 12 string. McCartney's got his Rickenbacker bass by now. I don't know if he's playing it on this. Oh, really? The How did that yeah. Oh. Okay. But we don't know whether he's playing it on this album or not. No, there are no photographs, but he has got it. So I don't know if you can tell. Uh, my ears aren't quite good enough to tell whether it, that's the face. Do, you know is... do you know what I love? But with all the McCartney sound, it's so it's so funny. Where it's the Hoffner or the Rickenbacker, it just sounds like McCartney. And the funny right, thing yeah. is, if it was anyone else, and, and it sounds like McCartney, and you go, oh, wow, that's McCartney. And it's amazing. And I love his sound. If anyone else sounded like that, if I went into a studio and said, here's my bass sound, I just think that is fucking dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he makes it work, doesn't he? He makes it work. Yeah. Have you? You must have seen Get Back, did you? The, the oh, long three times, yeah. three times. There's yeah. a bit where he's he's got his bass, and somebody says, "Can you dial up the treble or something?" And he looks at the knobs. He goes, "I don't even know what these things do." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and the and the nuts bust. Yes, go, I can't right. the nuts bust. It's like, mate, you're the Beatles. <laughs> surely <laughs> yeah i love that so i don't think he'd ever turned any of the knobs on it the the one thing that might have uh, accounted for the sound was that they do think this book thinks that it's the first time they used a fender basement amp um, ah. and that possibly gave it a slightly fatter sound do you think that's that's very very possible but the thing i mm. love about gears to do with the beatles and everything and uh, the, the absolute fetishization 
of yes. it. No, no, I'm as guilty of it as anyone. But it is that was the great thing from seeing get back is to see well, well that's leaning against that and that's plugged into well that seems to be on it's like they are that's like they're not doing anything then there's not like well what you know john honed this for he, he didn't do anything plugged it in and it was on so that's what they play you know i need a guitar here's one so it's you know <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to the rack and choosing the right sound are they or anything like that no yeah. but it all comes i mean the one i i love it is is you know it's kind of the ultimate sort of expression that seems to me when people go to such insane lengths to try and get that exile on main street sound and it's like you know that that's that's a real sort of touchstone isn't it it's like mate they were in a basement with a truck they were just trying to get shit down they weren't they didn't want it to sound like that they would have loved to have had a higher ceiling and like <laughs> no it's it's not as nuanced as the as certainly the times you were playing in studios where you could spend quite a long time on setting up the bass and the drums well uh, i was like nick mason made a lovely comment about um when he produced the damned and uh, he, you know, he said what was probably the, the most fun thing about it was the fact that we got this album recorded and mixed in the time it took Pink Floyd to get a drum sound. That says it all. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Mal Evans described how they tried to get that tambourine sound on tour that's in Day Tripper. Oh, so yeah, he actually, yeah. He fitted an additional Ching ring inside a tambourine, removed the skin, put it on an internal rod on a cymbal stand so that he could do that live, apparently, for Day Tripper. Very inventive bloke, that Mal. The tambourine stuff, that that's Motown, isn't it? That's that's because that's the thing I that, that I love. In fact, we had we were talking to Mick Hucknall the other week, and he said, and, and it's the it's the one thing, especially with all those guys with the stones and their blues and people with their R and B and you hear James Brown and everything. It's like one thing that doesn't automatically kind of spring to mind is the Beatles and Motown and they were so big into Motown they were so influenced and from the basically from those American tours wasn't it from that first American tour they talk about it as having that kind of Otis Redding type feel as well Day Tripper have you heard Otis Redding's version not for years let me just see if you can hear this hold on well no let me dial it up I've got it got it You can hear the roots of that soul Motowny sort of Stax sound in that cover, can't you? Well, that, that's the Stax thing more than the Motown thing, wasn't it? Because Motown was so much about um, melody and chords and everything, whereas Otis was more, you know, that Stax model, which was just more kind of energy and intent, and you know. Yeah, but definitely that's in the DNA of the song, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Got a good reason. This this opening note on the melody, got a good reason, is on a, a natural A. Oh, so it's suspended, right? Yeah, so it sort of clashes with the seven, doesn't it? Because the 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 note in the chord is a G sharp. Oh, yeah, interesting. Oh, right? yes. So a lot of singers say that they have have trouble with that that opening actually, and it doesn't sound like it when you're listening to it, but when you when you're you know trying to sing it, it's one so of those just... things where you you would you would notice it if you were playing another instrument. If you were trying to play a piano and there was a guitar, you go, oh, what is that? Uh. Even if you sustain those two notes, 
the guitar and the vocal, it's not going to sound like a clash because they're so... Oh, because they're different yeah, registers. Yeah. I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm going to be super nerdy here. Tell me if I go too far. No, but no, I love it. I love it. I love it. Analyzing Lennon's melodies, you find a lot of instances where he puts the wrong note against the chord, like here, an A against an E7. It's not, it's not a natural choice, if you know what I mean. I don't know if you know the song I'll Be Back Again. Yeah. In the break, I thought that you would realise he sings an E note against a B minor chord. I thought that you would realise that if I ran away from you... That's the same thing. It's a, it's a sus. That's the same thing. There was a harmony part I used to have to sing on... Is it Eclipse or Brain Damage? All that you see and all that you do on Dark Side of the Moon. And that started, that was exactly the same thing. Uh, it's on a D and my note was a G. And I and I was used to think, oh, wow, I'm starting on the sus. And it's a funny thing to do in your head. I had to consciously think about it. But, but because you are changing the chord. If you play a sus like Pete Townsend would. Pete Townsend is exactly what, what the first thing that came to mind is. It's because of him. If I'm just playing the guitar for fun, I can't go through a D without putting a sus on it. I just can't, you know. I just... <laughs> yeah, put that little finger yeah. down in every chord on Pinball Wizard, isn't it? Exactly, which is a set your standard, which is which is funny because it's the flamenco rundown, isn't it? So that's that classical Spanish rundown. Yes, yeah. Uh, but an, an all major, which is actually incredibly sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, amazing. It's funny to me that John Lennon often sings the a note that's sort of outside of the chord that he's hearing. That's to do with the way he hears music, because if he's, you know, it, it's obviously the chords that fall under your fingers. That's a note that's in his head. So we've got we're, we're looking like a blues, aren't we, in E? So we've got, you know, yeah. four bars of one, four bars of four. And then what you'd expect to go to would be the B, wouldn't you? But he doesn't. He goes to, goes to F sharp. Yeah, it's a gorgeous move. I love, oh, I've always loved that move. Got a good reason. This innate thing where what they and this is actually tends to be I would have said more McCartney than Lennon. Lennon was the more basic songwriter, right? Mac whereas McCartney was the one who had elements almost of almost of Broadway or old school. And this is this is sort of that sort of Broadway song or, or the great American songbook. I've never seen that chord climb done any anywhere else like that. It's quite it's quite an original take and it surprises you in the song, doesn't yeah. it? It takes you someplace yeah. else. 
and I'm sure we could go into, you know, it's the theme of tripping or day tripping, whatever, but it's it's just a great musical move, I think. Yeah, again, well, you know, when it gets to the meaning of the song, you know, the whole thing of day tripper and it was horrible because they were so into acid and it was taking the piss out of weekend hippies. Or at the same reason, I mean, there's very much, because as with so much Lennon, there's, you know, there's a girl thing going on, isn't there? There's a, some rather snarky thing. Lennon could be so snarky. And I, th- I actually subscribe to the theory that with a lot of writers that, I think sometimes his song wasn't necessarily about what he thought it was about. And this idea that it was aimed at Paul because Paul hadn't really got on the acid bus yet. He hadn't taken it at that point. Ringo, it was something I find really funny that Ringo took acid before because Ringo is just so nice and just all right, if you are. So, uh, but, and, and I, I, that to me holds water, the idea that John's actually having a dig at Paul. That comes up so often in the lyrics of their songs. Yeah. People can you can interpret it. I, that makes total. I've never heard that before, but that makes total sense. Well, it's 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 a little bit euphemized, isn't it? With she's a big teaser rather than that, people that's obviously what, it's prick teaser. It, yeah, it's not euphemized. It's just he obviously couldn't put prick teaser in it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> simple as that, isn't it? You know. So. And that's how times have changed because nowadays that's nothing, is it? And saying exactly. something like that. Exactly. But, yeah. Very often Lennon feels like he's singing to a girl, but the girl could be poor. They people yeah. talked about their relationship a bit like a marriage sometimes. Yeah, yeah, they? very much. But then again, you know, this is this is the great thing about um get back is how, you know, shooting down that whole narrative we've been previously fed about that. You know, that's because there's there's just one shot in it, and I, I've frozen this and I've rewound it and I've watched it again and again and again so many times. There's a bit where the power I can't even remember what they're playing. Um I think it might be I got a feeling, which which is just just the most perfect expression of what Paul's got and what John's got and what they bring to each other. It's just, it's it's just a, but there's a bit where John is looking at Paul with more love than I've ever seen one human being look at another. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of romance or family or anything, I've just never seen anyone who loves someone so much, you know, it's just, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's so yeah. beautiful. But that's why it's interesting. The thing I only heard recently with um, How Do You Sleep? Uh, people say, you know, well, that was obviously about Paul. It's about Paul, blah, blah. And that's, but at some point then it said, no, you know, it's about me. The, but the best one I heard, which which actually brought tears to my eyes, was that that he told Paul that Jealous Guy was about him. was that's about right, Paul. Yeah. And if you look back at those lyrics and think about it as Paul now, it makes total sense. You know, I didn't mean to hurt you. you yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Oh, the split. Oh, man. Mate, gives gives me shivers thinking about that. I was dreaming of the past And my heart was beating fast I began to lose control The double A side thing is a bit like a Paul John, although John had something to do with We Can Work It Out, is I guess the flavour of We Can Work It Out is a bit more Paul, isn't it? And that's another thing that comes yeah, in no, here that's with this t- release. Yeah, no, that comes out it? so Paul because, yeah, it's just, because mm. it's perfect pop. We're on another song now. But is that the first time in pop where we've had an absolutely clear cut 4-4 into waltz time? Into I mean, because oh, that's a straight 3-4, yeah. isn't it? That's, that's none more three, yeah. 
and then back into four. Has anyone ever done that before? I can't think of an, I don't, I you know, think of an example. Because the funny thing is because we're about to enter the age of Nick Mason, you know, where we might be in three, we might be in four. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take your <Yeah>. pick. <laughs> Although having said that, that was but that that was that was actually the essence of the early Elvis records, wasn't it? Because you know, because Scotty would be playing in a very, very clearly defined, very straight full four, and no one else was. And and there's a bit of you going, it's like, wow, either he really knows some secret of the mechanics of groove, or just kind of he doesn't know and no one's pointing it out that he's actually at a different time to everyone else. <laughs> So you you're gonna tell him or shall I? <laughs> Lots of times where John would add another beat to a bar, wouldn't he? Or yeah, George was very good at that though as well. George was very yeah because what was nice, which is that thing of proper songwriting, which is just like writing from a vocal and the shape of a song rather than from bars, rather than yes. sections, you know. So this was the first double A side. It's also I was listening to the Word podcast uh, recently, the David Hepworth and yeah, Mike Ellen I've one. Been where on they, that. So a guest on yeah, a guest on there was saying that he thought we can work it out, and by inference, this song Day Tripper was the was the point where it all changed for the Beatles. That's where they went into their new era. Yeah, that's where everything's open up. You know. Yeah, the sound changes. The songwriting gets again a little bit more complicated, doesn't yeah. it? Is, is it so it's a later port, port chord progression because if you just if you just sort of played those as straight chords it's kind of the sort of thing you get in a pet shop boys song or something right you know? yeah you yeah know, when we knew what pop music was and it was all stuff you know or or a motown song or something but that's mm. but here's the thing it's because you're hearing it because of what it is we're hearing it through kind of rock and roll ears and yeah it's and yet it's it's actually using a more sophisticated pop motown format as a song but it's you know it's because of, also it's got that thing of like um the octave jump in the riff oh yeah you know. yeah it's like a climb up there and of course the riff gets really intense in that what you i guess call the what would you call it it's not a guitar solo but when it goes to the b and it stays on the b and then it goes for, for i don't know how many bars 20 bars or something yeah yeah, yeah, on, yeah. on the the b version of the riff so yeah it really kind of reaches the crescendo there doesn't it <laughs> It was apparently the first session where they went past midnight in terms of recording. It would have been the same for you. You came into a world where people in studios, they went for days, they went all night, they had mad blenders, they did all that. That didn't exist. So you've got a company with a company structure of staff, of engineers who come in and work. And maybe, and as the years have gone by, over the last two, three years, they've got used to working a little later. You've got to remember, like, if this is the first time they work before midnight, it's the first time anyone has worked before midnight. Right. You no. Know, so yeah. it's like, fuck. What do we do? How, well, how do we get the how do we get the assistants home? How do we? You know, it's also yeah. the canteen yes. shut. There's <laughs> right. Yeah. And of course, by I get back, they're getting people complaining because they're still going at two a.m. Yeah. But yeah, it's changed everything, isn't yeah. it? Apparently, they had an argument, Paul and John, about which one would be a side, whether it should be we can work it out or day tripper, and that's where the compromise came. No band, right? Never. 
that that would have those two songs and go fuck which one are we going to do as the a side any other band it would be well clearly that's going to be a single and then that's going to be a single because the idea that you have such an embarrassment of riches that there's going to be so much other stuff coming down the line that these two have to come out now right <laughs> let's write two more b sides yeah, yeah, might be yeah, another exactly <laughs> You're, you're not the only person to have chosen it. Keith Cameron writing for Mojo said it, you know, it's his favorite. He said it's nothing without its riff. And that is surely the whole point. How audacious it feels, he says, to construct entirely around an 11 note motif. That riff, is that, do you think their best riff ever? No, it's not. No, 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 no. It, it's uh, the greatest prog riff of all time. Um, what's it off Abbey Road? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yeah. I want, I want you. you. Yeah. I want you. That's yeah. it. Sorry. Uh, that, that's the greatest riff they ever wrote. I mean, it's one of the greatest riffs anyone's was ever written. Well, there's a, it's the birth of the rock arpeggio, isn't it? Really, you know. Yeah, but it, yeah, it was like you said at the beginning. It's their first great riff, isn't it, Day Tripper? And then they went on to do Paperback Writer and various others. Yeah, with riffs. Yeah, well, for me, but it, because I don't really think of the Beatles as a riff band, and it's more it's stuff that happens. No, uh, for for me, it's it's one of my favourite uh, Beatles things is that thing of uh, of going to a chord and then making that chord a seventh when you really shouldn't. Right, if if you know what I mean, like yeah. with with yes. on on this on on day tripper, all the chords that are sevenths here are chords that are allowed to be sevenths that make sense, and that's why um, drive my car. Right, they're in A and it's A major, but then they go down to F and it's just that amazing piano figure which goes to the seventh, right, which is an E flat before we go back up to the A. That that boom 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 boom. That's as good as any riff I've ever heard. Baby, you can drive my car. Yes, I'm gonna be a star. Baby, you can drive my car. And baby, I love you. And at the same time, they were recording it. Interestingly, so they were doing those two songs very close together. Yeah, they got they got a lot in common actually, haven't they? They've got a lot in common those two. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if if they'd recorded it later with more heavy, I don't know, fuzz pedals and, you know, overdrive. Yeah. It, it would have sounded very different. Like Jimi Hendrix covered it that way, didn't he? But if you had that, if you were using that heavier sound, would you have written that riff? Yeah, it doesn't feel like yeah. that because it's too busy. Yeah, exactly. Way, yeah. Exactly. That's for those riffs, you know, mm. that you, you write a whole lot of love, don't you? You know. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to talk about guitar sounds, what is really, really interesting, I found, I noticed this, and I noticed this because I actually finally got to work with him last year, is that with the exception of uh, Who's Next, Pete Townsend's guitar sound on record is the same now as it was on sellout. It's that bit, that slight, that real amp distortion, but not rock distortion. And you just think of this guy with the biggest guitar sound in the world. And it's it's not the guitar, it's him. It's all the power and the rage and everything. It's just coming from him. It's not coming from the guitar at all. Pete Townsend, you finally got to play with him. Yeah, and it was he did a thing for um he did a thing for Audible where uh he was interviewed and then he just talked about the period from 79 to 81 or 82. And uh and and he just re-recorded songs from that period. So that one, I mean, it was heaven. This was this was um Rough Boys, Somebody Save Me, 
um so, you know my absolute dream stuff how did you get the gig what what happened the most b brilliant understatement of all time was i got a phone call and pete said hi guy i know that you've expressed an interest in working with me in the past and apparently my missus was upstairs with, with uh, my stepson lucas and they were they were cowering because they thought something really bad had happened because um, apparently i was shouting so much that they thought my computer had blown up or something and i was screaming and then it took a, a couple of minutes and i think lucas went hang on hang on i think he's happy about something because <laughs> he's been a hero of yours from he's why i'm a musician he's why i'm a musician so you know yeah yeah oh that must have been great was it all it, it was everything it was everything it everything yeah yeah i mean he did it yeah. i didn't even ask him he played the intro to um he played the intro to Barbara riley on the lowry he just did it Nice. And uh, yeah. I played the, you know, the Gretsch that Joe Walsh gave him. And I got, I got out one of Peter Cook's old, the end whistle bases. And, uh, and he just talks, talks. And it's, I said, it was like being a three day Ted talk. I mean, he's just incredible, incredible. And this isn't Betsy or bass Betsy, isn't that? End that was end whistle bass. Yeah. I mean, for what that's worth. I mean, like, you know. Yeah, quite a few. Because um, he? he had all of them. He had all of them at some point, you know. I would definitely treasure that. I do treasure that, yes. What I treasure more, is it here? It was here. Is, uh, no, it's, I've got his watch, which which is amazing, because I went to his, I went to the auction. Sotheby's had an auction uh, when he died. Also, and most of it, and uh, the one thing about Entwistle is, is he had a lot of terrible guitars. I mean, that's flight cases with like 12 buzzards in them. It's like, no, I'm good, thanks. And... Uh, <laughs> And everything just went for, was going for stupid money. I remember with a friend, we were, things like sort of fucking set of cufflinks shaped like a spider, you know, that sort of thing. And then I'd be like, that'll go for two grand. You think, really? But then this watch came up and it was one of the first ever digital watches made by the Hughes Corporation and just went through the net. And I got it, it was 180 quid and then no one else bid. I got it. And then to be fair, it cost me for, I had to send it to Poland. I had to send it to Canada. I, to, I mean, it cost me a fortune to get the fucking thing to work. Yeah. And it's like, because it, it takes two, you know, it takes two batteries and you can tell the time four times before you have to change them. And you have to take it to a specialist to change the batteries. So it's, but, but what made it all worthwhile was the first time I wore it, Billy Nichols was there, you know, of course it's, sort of as close who family as you can get and Billy pointed at it he went I remember that watch so it's actually he wore it he wore it so yeah fantastic is there anything more you want to say about Day Tripper before we wrap up it was the seventh highest selling single of the 1960s wow and it's but you, that is interesting yeah but it is yeah. interesting because you don't think of it as even a Beatles like I mean to musicians it's a big deal because like I said, you know, we're talking, it's, it's the opening of Pandora's box, isn't it? Kind of, we're, we're getting into that, but, but, you know, globally, you don't think of it as a, you know, that, that's like, you know, bow rap level kind of. Yeah. No, it's a lot, it's a lot about it. That's, that's to be treasured for what is apparently a, not a knockoff, but one that they wrote quickly and recorded quickly. If something's written really quickly, that could also just mean, yeah, because it was there, you know, because it was just there to be plucked out of the ether and there didn't need anything done to it. Do you know what I mean? You know, obviously it goes there. Well, obviously it goes there. And obviously it goes there. And I, yeah, you know, true took Gary an afternoon. I love that story you tell of that, the single you wrote with Jimmy Nail that went to number one. Oh, yeah, which was based the, um... on the... Da, 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 yeah, because I'd seen, I'd seen Full Metal Jacket the night before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that sounds like it came together quickly, and that was a number Ex exactly. one single. Exactly, exactly. 
And yeah. in fact, that line came out now because I was literally just just lying, going da, 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 da. and he literally went, "Ain't no doubt, it's playing the same." So he literally had the line. We didn't think of a line. That was the line that fell out of his mouth. Yeah. What does you pretend? It feels like you're reaching and pulling these things out of the sky. Yeah, out of the it? ether. Yeah. Well, it's like that 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 get back moment and get back. You know where you, you literally oh, yeah. just see it. Yes. Pulled out of the air. Yeah. I've always thought that that single must have been hearing what you put into it. That that riff must have been sort of subconscious to a lot of people. Like I sort of know that, but I don't. What always amazes me is the amount of because to me it's, it's you know it was like fuck. There's no way we're going to get away with this. And then it's like, well, I guess people will realise it's an homage. And, you know, but then it amazes me when, yeah, you said to people, oh, yeah. Oh, it's that movie thing. Oh, yeah. I find that incredible. To me, it's just that's all I hear. <laughs> yeah, those pentatonic riffs are often the greatest, aren't they? Stevie Wonder was great at those pentatonic, you know. Yeah. Da, 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 they're all pentatonic, oh, but yeah, that, 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 yeah. yeah, that was the first sort of, yeah. that was the first thing I ever learned that, that kind of used the whole neck. Yeah, I still too. struggle with it. It's one of those ones I still, it's one of those things. It's like, it, it's so, like, no matter how long you've been playing, it's, it's like, I'll always have a little bit of a wrestle with Rebel Rebel on the guitar. There'll always be that little moment, dead when you go to the open D. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm with you. And uh, like that, I think it's Nathan East who plays that. And um, that and a lot of Jacko tunes, I sort of, I do them and then I go, right, put on the record. And I realize I'm doing it like, 75% of the speed that it actually oh, yeah, is. Oh, no, yeah. So I can't, like, oh, yeah. shit, yes. I gave up learning. <laughs> I, I mean, I learned Teen Town years ago, and then I've forgotten it, and it's it's not coming back. For me, I mean, for the absolute ceiling for me is, and, you know, it's probably the, and this will do, and because that is actually slightly Jacko related, was that I had to get up with the blockheads with no rehearsal, haven't even met all of them before, no rehearsal in front of 16,000 people at Crop Ready and play Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. Oh, that's a great bass. And uh, yeah. that's that's probably the most difficult thing I've ever played because it just never stops. But the story of that is they had the song written. They're all ready to go. But the night before they went into the studio, Norman went to see Weather Report. And so he came in and went, no, 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 no. This is how the bass is going. <laughs> so it's, that's a that's a direct jack. -o. That no, makes sense. Yeah. It makes you wonder what would have happened if he'd never seen Weather Report that yeah, night. Yeah, exactly. Any other Beatles songs you want to give a sort of honourable mention to that would be in your top Beatles oh, songs? God, no, the one that probably had the greatest emotional impact on me when I first heard it is is like She's Leaving Home or something, oh, yeah. you know? It's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's what and Fall on the Hill, those sort of things. It's, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for the way McCartney hears chords, the way that moved on. Things like, you know, I mean... I, I mean, one of my favourite things is to just sit and play Maybe I'm Amazed on the piano because it's just it's just so gorgeous, you know. Even things like, you know, um, Let Him In or whatever, when you just think it's those perfect pop things. If our listeners want to sort of keep in touch with you. Rock on tours, mate. There's some very exciting rock on tours things coming up very soon. Uh, I'm doing a bit of Sources, Source of the Secret stuff in the summer, uh, but that's just 10 days in Italy. And then we're going to Australia. Or you can follow, you know, Guy Pratt Official on Facebook, Guy Pratt Official on Instagram. And thanks. Yeah, see whatever nonsense I'm doing. <laughs> Listen, it's been amazing having you to talk to about the Beatles and music and everything else. I, I really appreciate your time. Oh, no, I really enjoyed it. And, and um, apologies again for, for, if your listeners don't know, this has been the most circuitous 
and um, rescheduled interview of all time. To me, that's just made it even more special. So oh, um, there you go. No, oh, I really good. appreciate it. Uh, are you giving time to it? No, no, it's been a delight. Really good talking to you, Tim. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to my favourite Beatles song. If you like the podcast, please leave a review or rating as this helps us to reach new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at My Favourite Beatles Song and Twitter at at My Fave Beatles. See you next time. Oh,